The following program does not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Reality Radio 101, its advertisers and sponsors, or its listening audience. Listener discretion is advised. This episode of the Urban Forestry Radio Show has been brought to you by Stark Brothers Nurseries and Orchards. Two centuries of fruit tree expertise. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, here on Reality Radio 101. In this radio show and podcast, we learn about fruit trees, permaculture, arboriculture, and so much more. So if you love trees, and especially fruit trees, or if you're interested in living a more sustainable life, then this is the place for you. I'm your host, Susan Poisner of the Fruit Tree Care Training website, OrchardPeople.com. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner. To contact Susan live right now, send her an email in studio101 at gmail.com. And now, right to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. Now, I'm not a big fan of fruit flies. Those little flies find their way into my home and hang around in my kitchen. They're so tiny, but they still really bug me. But the thing about those fruit flies is that they're really only interested in old, rotting fruit. They stay away from the young fruit growing on my fruit trees, and I'm really happy about that. But those kitchen-style fruit flies have relatives who are much more destructive. They're called spotted wing drosophila, and they can destroy crops including cherries, apricots, raspberries, and elderberries. Spotted wing drosophila is a fruit fly that's native to Southeast Asia, but it's found its way to North America now, and it is really enjoying our warming climate. So, what does it do? Well, the female flies inject their eggs inside the fruit on your fruiting trees and shrubs. The fruit then becomes contaminated with larvae, and it goes soft and mushy. The end result is cherries or apricots or raspberries that are inedible and need to be thrown away. These flies are so small, you might wonder how much damage can they really cause? Well, spotted wing drosophila multiplies fast and can destroy crops quickly, so growers are scared. But my guest today has discovered that with a few simple tools, you can make your fruit trees, orchards, and food forests less appealing to this damaging fruit fly. So my guest today is Nikki Rothwell, Ph.D., and she's from Michigan State University's Northwest Michigan Horticulture Research Center. Her research interests include tree fruit training and irrigation systems, pest management strategies, and horticultural modernization. Now, today we're going to talk a lot about the role correct pruning plays in caring for fruit trees. Do you know how to prune your fruit trees? 
Did you know that fruit tree pruning is really very different from pruning native or ornamental trees? Send us an email during the live show today and you may be able to learn all about fruit tree pruning. That's because today's prize is free tuition to my online fruit tree pruning masterclass. This is a three-hour course that will teach you everything you need to know about pruning. Tuition is usually $149, but if you win today, you'll get it for free. So send us an email during the live show and we'll enter you into the contest. Our email is instudio101 at gmail.com. Remember to include your first name and where you're writing from. You can write a question or a comment or you can just write in to say hi. We look forward to hearing from you at instudio101 at gmail.com. So let's learn about spotted wing drosophila. Nikki, welcome to the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Susan. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, tell me something. What, where did your journey begin with this, this fruit fly? Like how, how long have you been studying it and, and how bad is the problem? Yeah, so we were part of an early response uh, detection program uh, with the Michigan Department of Agriculture and Rural Development that we've been on the lookout for this pest for quite some time. And we found it in Michigan, in the state, in 2010. So we've been really dealing with this for quite some time now. And it feels, quite frankly, like time has flown and trying to, you know, hurry and come up with something that resembles some kind of a solution for our cherry growers. Well, it's considered a fruit fly. What what makes it part of this fruit fly kind of family? Yeah, so it's a Drosophila species. So there's lots of different kinds of fruit flies. Uh, the ones most commonly that we see um, are apple maggot and cherry fruit fly in orchard systems. But that's actually a Ragolita species. So those guys kind of seem like a piece of cake. So those guys to control usually have one generation per year, where these Drosophila species, they're known um, you know, for their work in a lot of genetics research. And the reason they do this genetic research on these flies is they can really move through generations you know, under these optimal conditions. So in our laboratory, we rear them, we have a colony to do a research, and we can see that they can go through one generation every seven days. I've actually even seen it in the lab, even under seven days. So one week you can get a new generation. And so when you really think about, you know, yeah, they're small, but their numbers can grow really, really quickly. And so every seven days you'd have a generation and you could just think about the numbers that you would be fighting in your orchard system. And so that's why we always talk about this pest is really a numbers game. And it's all about getting your numbers low because if you don't, there's not a lot of hope that you can stop an army of, like, billions of these Drosophila species. Unbelievable. One generation in seven days. So over a growing season, you'd have how many generations? Well, that's something we're trying to figure out. So if your listeners ever think about Michigan, we're not the warmest place. (laughs) So we have winter, and I think winter does a number on them. So I think the populations get knocked off in the wintertime, But the other thing is we have Lake Michigan to our west, so we have a lot of snow cover. And so I think that the snow cover keeps them, the numbers go down in the winter, and then it creates kind of a bottleneck. But I think the adequate snow cover protects them. And we've done some trapping all year long. So we'll trap 12 months out of the year, and we'll strap on our snowshoes in the winter months. And it's 
unbelievable, but I can catch them in January, February, March. Usually the only months I don't catch them are April and May, and now we're starting to catch them in May. And so these populations, you know, winter reduces their number, but I think by the time, and last year we had really hot and dry conditions, and I think the populations grew slowly because of that. But it was quite interesting when you look at these exponential population growth curves since we've been trapping we used to really see those that exponential growth that would come oh in september october and then it was in august and now it's in july so it keeps backing up further and further and so what's happened in our area um, is that it's overlapping perfectly with tart cherry harvest which is a wonderful host for spotted wing drosophila it's wonderful for the spotted wing drosophila not so good for the growers mind you how much damage would no. it do, can it do to a sour cherry crop if you get, you know, let's say even if you get a little bit of damage from spotted wing drosophila, is that a problem? Maybe one or two cherries or, you know, a thousand cherries if it's a big harvest, no big deal, right? Well, it's a problem in our industry. So the tart cherry industry, and I'll just give you a little refresher for your listeners, the tart cherry industry is pretty big in Michigan. So maybe other folks around the world don't think of it, but next week is the National Cherry Festival. So we're home to kind of the largest cherry like festival in um, probably North America for sure. And so what we have is we grow 50% of the whole nations of the U.S. All those tart cherries that are grown in the U.S. are grown within the five-county area that surrounds the Grand Traverse region. If you add in the rest of Michigan, we grow somewhere between 75 and 80 percent of the U.S. tart cherry uh, crop is actually grown within the state. So cherries are a really big deal for us, and it's part of our agricultural heritage, particularly in northwest Michigan where I'm located. So the thing the tart cherry industry has, and this has been on the books for many, many years, is what we call a zero-tolerance policy. So there used to be inspectors at all the receiving stations and processing facilities. They don't do that as much anymore, but they do, they do take samples out of a tank. So we harvest tart cherries into 1,000-gallon tanks of um, cold water, and then those are brought immediately to a, um, either a receiving station and or um, a processing facility, and they get pitted almost immediately because they're so perishable. So in somewhere, there's an inspector that grabs handfuls out of these tanks. And if there's one larva, and it doesn't matter if it's a spotted wing or another kind of insect, if there's one larva on a truck, the whole truck gets dumped. Wow. So that's been a policy that's been in place for a lot of times, so growers can't afford that risk. So we don't really know, I mean, on the research front, we don't really know what that threshold is or how much loss we can really take, and growers just can't gamble. Because if they do find even one larva in their you know, load of fruit, everything will get dumped. So if I were to buy a bag of cherries from somewhere, let's say, and I you know, pop a cherry in my mouth, I don't even know if there's a larva in there, do I? Or would the cherry itself be mushy and unappealing right from the start? So you're right. These guys are tiny, and especially... The eggs are tiny, <clears throat> and then the first instars are also pretty small, and they're pretty hard to see with the naked eye. 
I can recognize, but I've been doing this for a little while, I can recognize an orchard when they've got fruits that actually have SWD or spotted wing in there because that's what happens over time. So the larvae will start feeding on the inside of the cherry, and then the cherry starts becoming kind of softer, and when you pick it, it's really juicy. And so you're like noticing that your hands are full of juice, and that's not very typical. And so they get really juicy, and then over time, I mean, for lack of a better, it becomes like basically a sack of like leftover remains of larvae, you know, fecal matter and all that kind of stuff. And they'll just turn, they'll look like empty sacks kind of hanging on the tree that just drip liquid out of them. But that, that process takes, you know, time for the larvae to, you know, feed inside the fruit. And the other thing that I've actually noticed, we, we have a lot of research trials here at our research station and we don't spray at all for them. So once an orchard gets infested pretty badly, you can actually smell it before you even walk into the orchard. Wow. So it gives off an, like kind of a vinegary odor to it. It's, but my, my, all my summer crew thinks it's like a little bit like vinegar mixed with like ranch dressing that's gone a little off. <laughs> wow. So, and what is it exactly that we're smelling? Is, are we smelling the, the flies? Are we smelling their, their frass or their poop? Are we, what is it that the smell, what is the smell? My guess, it's probably a little from the fly itself, and it's a little from the fruit when it starts to decay. But they really make it that combination of that vinegary smell that you got to have the fly and the fruit. So like I said, we have a colony here at our research station, and our research station stinks from the time we start the colony in the winter all the way through harvest season. So the flies themselves are fairly stinky. So I think it's a combination of them both. And, you know, I wonder on, you know, when you think about what we've seen in orchard systems, it's quite interesting. You'll see that you'll walk by a tree that everything looks, the fruit looks intact, looks great. And then you'll go five trees down and you'll notice that this one tree has really been stung up and there's a lot of SWD in that tree. And I wonder if there's a cue, like a volatile cue, either from the fruit and or the feeding of these insects on the fruit, that they don't call in more of their like species and then they start stinging up. Oh. We have some data that's quite neat um, that we, I've actually shown. They do prefer fruit that's already infested. Mm. So we put infested fruit into these kind of arenas, and then the females can go and they can lay eggs in fruit that has larvae already in there or nice intact fruit, and they'll always choose the fruit that's already infested. Wow. And then we've actually watched... We've done timing trials, too, so we actually watch her. She'll spend physically more time on fruit that's already infested as well. Interesting. Wow. Well, we've got an email here from Corinne. Uh, oh, no, from Donnie from Connecticut. Hey, Susan, I was wondering what's the best organic way to care for our trees? What fertilizers and ways to manage pests organically? Thanks. So we're going to go, uh, Donnie, we're going to go into lots more detail about how to manage these particular pests. But I'm wondering, um, do you have, Nikki, any comment about, you know, the importance of feeding your tree properly so it can fight off pests like this? Or any thoughts on that? I mean, it's a, good, it's a good question. And, you know, we've done a lot of this work more on the disease front just because I think that healthier trees can fight off disease much better um, than, you know, sickly or unhealthy trees. 
Unfortunately, I don't think that spotted wing or SWD really responds that well to the health of the tree. Because I've seen, you know, we've seen growers that have walked away from orchards, basically I threw in the towel because of whatever reason. And those fruit are still perfectly fine for breeding uh, SWD populations. Hmm. And so I feel like the fruit itself, if there's fruit on the tree and you're not managing or spraying for it, then I think that their SWD itself will still get in there. We do have two products that are, low, uh, that are labeled organic um, on the you know, U.S. side that will work against SWD or spotted wing. Oh, yeah. You're talking about sprays that will work against them. Mm-hmm. So what are they called? Well, it's a spinosin, um, and so it is labeled um, for organic production, and so uh, and it does work. So that's the thing that's quite interesting about a lot of our organic materials that we spray against insect pests. Sometimes they don't work as well as we'd hope. And so we do see growers um, that are successfully managing uh, this pest organically in northern Michigan. The problem is, though, again, if those populations rise later in the season and, like, let's say your harvest gets delayed, that's where we run into trouble is, again, you just can't beat down all those billions or millions of flies in an orchard. They can overwhelm even, like, the most conventional-type spray programs. They can find – we've done uh, tons of research where we've actually – we've bagged certain areas on trees so they're not sprayed, and then we'll remove those bags and we'll put out sentinel fruit, and they can find those unsprayed fruit in, you know, a block of 10 acres of cherries. Wow. So they can, yeah, they can basically find any hole in a spray program, whether it's organic or conventional. Hmm. Well, let's, let, I'm going to ask you a couple more questions, and then we'll go to a little um, commercial break. But first of all, give me an idea. What is the extent of the spread of this insect in North America? Has it come to Canada? What states might you find it in? Um, is it spreading? It is spreading. Um, so I was out in Utah. So we do have a tart cherry uh, area that we grow out in Utah. But the thing that those guys don't have, which is different than a lot of areas in Canada or the, you know Michigan in the east, is they're growing a lot of this fruit in the desert. So our main you know, areas where we grow sweet cherries, B.C., and into Washington, a little bit down into Oregon, a lot of those guys, they're growing fruit in a desert. So once those cherries are harvested, there's really nowhere for those uh, flies to go to build up those populations. Or here in the east, um, like Michigan, uh, New York, on into Ontario, the problem we have are woodlots. And those woodlots have autumn olive, they have mulberry, they have black caps, they have wild raspberries, and those are all hosts for spotted wing. And so that's the challenge is when it gets hot and dry out in the west, those populations, they trap, and they, as soon as the cherry harvest is over, those populations just drop. Where here in the east, the populations just keep building and building and building until like the first frost, essentially. Uh-huh. So you're so talking... are around. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually have heard some colleagues uh, from Omafra this year that they're catching huge numbers in their traps, they think, already. So there mm-hmm. are folks in Ontario that are monitoring for this pest as well. Wow. So interesting that it's spreading. It's not a good thing. The other thing is I understand that sour cherries are appealing for these flies, but do they also go for sweet cherries? Or what are the other fruits that they like? destroying Mm -hmm. yeah 
So they will go to sweet cherries. Um, we've done a lot of choice and no choice tests where we release flies in different types of arenas, and then we look at to see where they're going, what they're preferring, and they will they will attack sweet cherries. Um, I think that the the issue is in where I'm from in the northern part of the state here in Michigan. We are basically done with sweet cherry harvest before the populations get big. But over time, I feel like this year might be really optimal. They really like high relative humidity, and we have just had tons of rain. So I feel like this year might be a year that we could have issues in sweet cherries. Mm. They, we've never, uh, we trap every year, so we have strawberry growers here, and we trap in strawberries. And I really haven't seen them in strawberries, but again, I think it's a function of population size. What we have seen a lot across the state and actually everywhere in the east, raspberries. They love raspberries. And it's funny, I have a lot of homeowners that call and say, oh, I've heard of this bug. You know, I don't have it. And I think it's just because they can't see it or they're eating them and they don't know it. So raspberries are probably the far and away most favorite thing that they could eat. And so raspberries, they'll also get leaky. And then we used to have growers, especially UPIC operations, that would have kind of like fall-bearing raspberries. That industry is basically gone within the state just because they can't keep SWD out of fall-bearing raspberries. Unbelievable. That is so scary. What Now, I understand apricots, uh, which I love growing in they, Toronto. They're, they're vulnerable as well? Uh, they will. They'll get some. But you know what? I really don't see them. What we've seen, we've done a lot more work in peaches because peaches are later in harvest and tart cherries in our area. So they will, they really like the suture line on a peach and I'm assuming on an apricot, but we'll see a lot of eggs, but we've never really been able to get a lot of larvae or adults out. So I think the fuzziness will prevent them and the firmness. So there, as soon as I think, our, I think our data show that as soon as you get below five pounds of pressure on a peach, that's when it's over. So my assumption would be the same for apricots. Same with plums. They will attack plums, but they really don't like them until they get really quite soft. Hmm. Uh, we got an interesting question here from Amon. Uh, Hi, Susan, listening from El Paso, Texas. Love the show. <laughs> but what a creepy topic. It's so creepy that you may not be able to see these flies on fruit with the naked eye. Does washing cherries aggressively as a consumer fix this? Thanks. I think that's a good question. Is there anything that we consumers can do? Well, washing is probably not going to help. But what we've done, and, you know, so the other fruit I should have mentioned, blueberries. They really love blueberries, too. And we have quite a big industry in Michigan with blueberries uh, where they've been seeing some challenges. So as a consumer, this is what we've kind of done um, so we buy a lot of, you know, Michigan blueberries especially and cherries. But when you buy fresh blueberries or any fresh fruit, you can actually let them sit out for a little bit. And then you can put them in some warm water with like maybe a brown sugar solution. The larvae do not like to be disturbed. So when we do our research, we always do this brown sugar test where we kind of gently squish the fruit, which obviously as a consumer you don't want squished fruit. But the, I think if you put them into, um, like, brown sugar water ratio, I mean, it's just so it's sweet. They just don't like that irritation, and they'll float or they'll come out of the fruit. So it, washing it won't help because the larvae are actually feeding inside the fruit, which is also a reason why insecticides don't help a lot of times, too. Once they're in the fruit, it's too late. So brown sugar solution, they will come out. 
um, when they're irritated, but sometimes when they come out and they're floating around, a lot of times the fruit, <laughs> frankly, isn't as appealing as it was before. Oh, boy. So I, yeah, I actually just don't tell um, my daughter about the raspberries and just let her eat them. <laughs> so obviously, over time. <laughs> <laughs> obviously, it's not going to kill us if we have some, I guess it's a little extra protein, right? Yeah, exactly. And the other thing is, too, I think, I mean, not that I'm advocating for eating insects, although I'm an entomologist, I feel like, yeah, an occasional larva here and there probably won't be really bad, but once the infestation is bad enough, you're getting fruit that has off flavors, off taste, and you'll be able to see that, and you'll be able to taste that. I think the consumer will be able to. Okay, so I think we've got a really good big picture of what the problem looks like. After the break, I want to talk about the solutions that you've discovered. So are you okay holding on the line, uh, Nikki, for a couple of minutes? And we'll listen to some commercials. Okay, that's wonderful. So you are listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show and Podcast, brought to you by Stark Brothers Nursery and Orchards. This is RealityRadio101.com, and I'm Susan Poisner, author of the award-winning fruit tree care book, Growing Urban Orchards, and we'll be back right after the break. Stark Brothers is primarily a direct-to-consumer marketer of fruit trees, berry plants, nut trees. We do this on a national basis. We're the largest as far as what we do, and we've been doing it for 200 years. The company started in 1816 when James Hart Stark brought his family and a satchel full of apple scions across the Mississippi River, settled here in what is now Louisiana, Missouri. The big first apple for Stark Brothers was the Red Delicious Apple, and it started in 1893. And then 20 years later, in 1914, the Golden Delicious Apple was mailed to the facility here. Two-thirds of all the apples eaten in the world today are cousins of these two apples. Essentially, they have the DNA of the Red Delicious or Golden Delicious Apple in their DNA. We have about eight acres of warehouses, and we have between 350 and 400 acres of field production going on every year, which is split into two crops, the crop you're budding and the crop you're selling. We have about five acres of greenhouses. We offer a wide variety of product. We're growing woody fruit trees, small fruits, raspberries, blueberries, knockout roses, kiwis. There's always a new product coming out or a new technique. E-commerce has changed our business model completely, and we recognize we're open 24-7, and the customer wants their merchandise faster and sooner than they ever have. What works well with us is that, one, we're centrally located, that 75% of our customer base is within two days' time in transit. We'll send an email on a Monday, and if you place your order today or tomorrow, you'll be planting this weekend. Stark Brothers Nurseries and Orchards. Learn more at StarkBros.com. If you're an arborist, master gardener, or landscaper who's keen to learn fruit tree care skills, check out OrchardPeople.com's Certificate in Beginner Fruit Tree Care. Not only does our intensive online training give you the skills you need, but we'll also give you a certificate that you can use to claim continuing education credits from the International Society of Arboriculture and from other professional bodies. Learn more about continuing education at OrchardPeople.com by visiting orchardpeople.com slash workshops. 
Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To get on board, send Susan an email right now. Our email address is instudio101 at gmail.com. And now, right back to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show and Podcast, brought to you by Stark Brothers Nursery and Orchards. This is Reality Radio 101, and I'm your host, Susan Poisner. In today's show, we're talking about a teeny tiny little fruit fly that is destroying some cherry, apricot, and berry crops in various places in North America. It's called spotted wing drosophila, and these fruit flies lay their eggs under the skin of the growing fruit, turning that fruit into a mushy, larva-filled mess. So today on the show, I'm chatting with Nikki Rothwell, PhD, an entomologist from Michigan State University, and she's found that there's actually some pretty easy ways that growers can protect their fruit trees from spotted wing drosophila. She's going to talk about that on the show today. Now, one of the key solutions you will discover is pruning your fruit tree properly. So I thought it would be fitting if the prize for today's show uh, contest is free tuition to my online fruit tree pruning masterclass, valued at $149. This is an online course that you can take anytime, anywhere, and I'll teach you everything you need to know about how to prune freestanding fruit trees. I'll also teach you how to prune or trim espalier fruit trees and orchard-style high-density trees. To participate in the contest, all you have to do is send us an email right now with your question or comment, or you can just say hi. Send your email to instudio101 at gmail.com. That's instudio101 at gmail.com. And remember to include your first name and where you're writing from. So, back to Nikki Rothwell, PhD from Michigan State University. So, Nikki, before the break, we talked about what spotted, drink, spotted wing drosophila is and how it damages crops. So, tell me a little bit about how you started researching solutions to this problem. Yeah, so that is, it's an ongoing uh, research project. I think I told you when we joined on the phone that we're setting up our trials um, this year for 2019. So what we, what actually I started thinking about, I was starting to think about the tart cherry system or the sour cherry system. So it's frankly a quite old system that we've been trying to work with growers on maybe how to modernize it. So our tart cherries are grown um, on a standard rootstock. So if your listeners don't know, the bottom half of the tree is the rootstock, and then we graft a scion or a variety to the top. And that uh, rootstock is called the Mahala, but very old. Uh, it's a very old rootstock. And actually, the Montmorency cherry is the majority of our industry within uh, North America. And the Montmorency is an old French variety that's, you know, 250 years old. So the way we grow these trees is we put them in the ground. We have huge wide spacing. So nothing like SPLA trees. There's nothing high density about this. So they're about 20 by 20 feet. And we put them in the ground, and then we keep the fruit off them so the tree grows and fills its space. And we do not harvest these trees until years, you know, around five, six, even seven. 
So, and the reason we do this is the majority of the industry mechanically harvests their cherries. So they actually use a cherry shaker. So the cherry shaker has a clamping mechanism where it actually clamps onto the trees and it gives them a couple good shakes and the fruit fall from the trees onto some kind of catch frame and then they're harvested into those tanks of water. So it's a system that's quite old. It was quite revolutionary when we came up with the shaker because a lot of systems that are still hand harvested, tart cherries were mechanically harvested. So we used to have uh, lots and lots of people that would come to the Grand Traverse region every summer because all those little tiny beautiful red cherries were hand harvested at one time. So the system is very old. So when I think about spotted wing, there's in the literature, they really don't like hot and dry temperatures. So remember when I was talking about out west, once those cherries are gone, there's nothing really for them to reproduce in. So in hot and dry situations, I think that they will move from the crop of choice into the woodlots where it's cooler, it has more shade. And then we started looking at our tart cherry canopies and I thought, my gosh, those are giant. Why would those females need to be moving out of the canopy to those woodlots if they have a nice shady area, that the temperature's not super hot, and that the relative humidity is probably higher? So we started to test that. Is the relative humidity higher in a canopy than outside the canopy? And then we started looking at different pruning strategies. So how much wood do you need to remove from the canopy to actually lower your relative humidity and well increase your relative decrease your relative humidity and then also decrease your temperature so we started to do these different pruning treatments and yes if we remove six to ten limbs of a tart cherry tree on an annual basis we will reduce our larval infestation by 40 percent and that's with no insecticide applications at all. That's quite... So what this was, was, it was exciting, Susan, because it was like there was some kind of light. <laughs> because that's what this pest has been. It's been, it's actually, this pest has been very heart- heartbreaking in a lot of ways. Because there seems to be nothing you can do to really stop it. And we were really, our growers don't, no growers want to spray more than they have to. And so we wanted to try to come up with a more holistic approach to managing this pest rather than just telling growers to jump in the sprayer and go spray insecticide. That's incredible. So basically what you're doing is you're, you, you know, you're opening up the tree, you're increasing air circulation to dry it out, and you're letting the sun in to make it way too hot. It's good for the fruit because the fruit ripens, but it's way too hot for the fruit flies for the spotted wing drosophila to hang around in there. So basically you want to make it too hot for the, the flies. Exactly. And I want them to leave the crop because if, if those females just stay in that nice, comfortable canopy, I think that all her resources are really devoted in putting into laying eggs rather than traveling back and forth to woodlots. And so anytime we can get them out of the system or reduce the numbers in the system, the better. So we were really excited to see that. Where I really want to take this is, you know, six to ten limbs. Every grower has a different pruning strategy. We were out today. We have this really sweet new machine. It actually looks like a lightsaber, but it actually measures the amount of light in the canopy. And so we're trying to come up with 
you know, how much is good enough pruning? You know, six limbs to one grower, maybe, you know, 10 limbs to another grower. So I would like to get it down to the percentage of light that's infiltrating the canopy, what's really good for SWD or spotted wind control. So we have this new machine that we were out just trying to test and it basically measures the light in the canopies. And we're gonna measure light in the different pruning treatments. And then, you know, maybe this isn't fantasy, but somewhere down the line, is there an app on your phone that measures light and growers can go out and look at their canopy and say, oh yeah, this is enough or this is open enough, or the humidity is low enough to really minimize SWD in the canopy. Oh, that is so exciting. Um, We have an interesting question from Bev. Uh, She writes, Hi, Susan. I'm Bev. I'm listening from Homepain in northern Ontario. I love the show. A question is, are these flies surviving the winter in fallen fruit? If the orchard was cleaned up, would it help in getting rid of this fruit fly? Thanks so much. That's a that's an awesome question. And so we actually have a research project that's going to be dedicated to that. So the other thing that we've been finding is they overwinter on a lot of different things. We can find them on mushrooms. We can find them in pine sap. So we can find them um, on apples. And what we're really interested in right now are call piles. Um, like let's say you have a cider you know, mill or something, and you have all this leftover fruit, will they reproduce in those areas? So we're trying to figure that out if there might be hot spots. But I think the more you can do to clean up the fruit is probably good. But then they're in tricky places like pine sap in the winter. So some of our colleagues in Georgia found that uh, to be true. And then on mushrooms. So in a wet fall, there's just a lot of mushrooms laying around. They're there as well. Hmm. So I don't know if it's a sure, you know, like it's like not foolproof by any means, but anything you can do to reduce the populations or the chance for them building those populations, the better. It's a piece of the puzzle. So, um, yeah, so we've got an email now from Ben. Hi, Ben here from Santa Rosa, California. (laughs) So you are saying if we consume those these flies, even at a large quantity, since I absolutely love cherries, that they will not hurt me. I am worried now. Thanks. <laughs> okay, should Ben be worried? He's in Santa Rosa, California. He eats a lot of cherries. So, no, we shouldn't worry. I mean, our growers are doing the best they can to balance out, um, you know, managing the pest and also trying to do holistic approaches. So I think they're doing the best job they can. The other thing that I think is if there is infestation, those usually will get tossed and won't go onto the market. And then the other thing is I feel like um, these approaches that we've been talking about, pruning, and then there's some other things we've been doing with mowing, is reducing the populations. In California, we've actually had some colleagues come out and speak to our growers. They have a real issue with call piles from citrus. So where they have problems with spotted wing drosophila is where they have call piles from citrus. It breeds in the citrus, and then it moves to the adjacent sweet cherries. So in California, they found that if they remove those call piles of citrus, they drastically reduce their SWV populations. So there are growers all across the country, look, or growers, researchers, trying to come up with these approaches that hopefully aren't just insecticide-based. And like I said, if there are um, you know, larvae in fruit occasionally, most of the time it'll be a very minimal like, level of detection. So I don't think anyone should give up their cherry habit at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's good. I'm relieved. So we also had an email from Roz from Ottawa, Ontario. 
Roz says, does your guest have any experience with or comments about barrier covers, for example, Kootenai covers, to combat SWD? These covers seem like an interesting idea, but I suspect the timing of when they are put on the fruit tree is critical. If the covers are put on too late or are not sealed properly, you would risk trapping the fruit flies inside with the fruit. I also wonder if these covers could keep out the fruit flies, but affect the ripening of the fruit since the size of the mesh is considerably smaller than bird netting. Um, so that's an interesting question from Roz. And I did see online that there are literally these zipper covers that you can zip on top of your fruit tree. Um, what do you, have you heard about those and what do you think about it? I mean, it's a great idea, especially I would say this is particularly a great idea for a backyard gardener or a backyard uh, orchard owner, just because you don't have the sheer number of trees. So we have 32,000 acres of tart cherries in the state of Michigan, and our trees are somewhere, you know, by the time you have a you know, 15-year-old tree, you're talking about 18, 20 foot in the air. So netting is not possible there. However, netting does work. We've brought in a speaker um, from France that they are netting a lot of their uh, cherries in France. And then the Italians are also netting a lot of their cherries. So we had a speaker that um, he's a breeder. And so he really um, is trying to be breeding a lot of these. And his focus for his research has totally changed. And now he's breeding for architecture that fits under nets. So they're receiving a premium price for this fruit still in Italy where it makes sense to cover because that's the problem on an economic, it's not very, yeah, it's not very economical, especially on a bigger scale. Mm-hmm. So that's the issue with that. But I think in Italy, the, the, he seemed to think that it was still worth it for them to try to cover and make a physical barrier to keep that fruit fly out. Mm-hmm. I also have an email from Trish Tisha from California. I would like to suggest the owners of orchards to the owners of orchards that they all watch the new major award-winning documentary called The Biggest Little Farm. It shows why the fruits get ravished, and in brackets, not enough diversity in plants, animals, and insects, and it explains how to balance the system so all life flourishes beyond expectations. The film is playing at small theaters and will be on Netflix soon. Please, please watch it. This movie is inspiring all those that watch it. It will help motivate all of us to take part like me, Smiley. So um, Tisha's talking about biodiversity. Do you think that could play a role? Like maybe there is some natural predator that another fly or another insect that will eat the SWDs. I mean, we're looking for that. So we are, there's quite a big team of North American researchers um, that are back in Asia. They're trying to find a pest, which we all know that that can turn out to be very troublesome if we select the wrong natural enemy or predator. So there are some things in USDA quarantine right now. But in terms of, you know, diversity within like a backyard farm or a farm itself, I think that probably there is something to that. When you have lots of acres of, you know, um, cherries, let's say, tart cherries, they don't have to fly that far to build those populations. So diversity may be able to help. The problem with spotted wing is that it does attack a lot of soft flesh fruits. And so you'd have to really think about what you'd put on your farm to really diversify it enough that you would have things that it wouldn't like. So my guess is it's 
you know, it'll get into strawberries and raspberries, and it will get into soft flesh peaches and plums and apricots and tart and sweet cherries. So that leaves kind of apples and pears if you're thinking about, you know, fruits that they don't really like or they don't infest. Oh, the other one up here is that we grow a lot of wine grapes. So they do not like vinifera wine grapes. We've tried to infest vinifera wine grapes for many different trials, and there's something about wine grapes that they do not like. Wow. Okay, so that's good. So keep an eye when you're doing, creating a more biodiverse environment. Just make sure you're not just giving them a whole selection of things that the spotted wing Drosophila likes. <laughs> you want to give them well, things that they, they like don't kind like. Of what we like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if you were going to grow things in your backyard, you you just think of all those fruits that we just named, and that's probably what everybody wants to oh grow my gosh. in their backyard. We've got an email from Carmen. Hi, Susan. Just tuned in a few minutes ago. I had to really listen to you and your guest, as I thought you were talking about STDs for flies, not SWD. <laughs> Hilarious. I heard you wrong. Love your show from Pablo, Pablo, California. Thank you, Carmen. That's so cute. Nope. Uh, SWD is the short form, I guess. It's a short and snappy way to say spotted wing drosophila, which trust me, I've said it a few times during the show. It is a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> so. Yeah, it definitely is. And I actually, I kind of like that analogy a little bit. It kind of does feel like it is something really bad that you don't want, like you would think of an STD. So, I mean, maybe there is something Maybe there was that. something to that. You're right. Yeah, exactly. So, okay, we're going to go for another little commercial break. Uh, Nikki, you'll be okay holding on the line for a minute or two. We can continue this conversation. There's a few more things that I want to explore with you. Okay, sounds good. Okay, perfect. So we you're listening to the Urban Forest Radio Urban Forestry Radio Show and Podcast, brought to you by Stark Brothers Nursery and Orchards. I'm Susan Poisner of the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. This is Reality Radio 101, and we'll be back in just a moment. In healthy soil, there's so much activity going on. Microorganisms thrive, and good bacteria feed on sugars that seep out of plant and tree roots. In return, these bacteria transform nutrients in the soil into fertility that our plants can enjoy. But what if you don't have perfect soil? Those friendly bacteria may not be active, and your plants and trees may not thrive. There is a solution, though. Earth Alive Soil Activator is an organic biofertilizer that contains three carefully selected bacterial strains that will make nutrients in the soil available to your plants. And your plant or tree will thank you with better growth and a better harvest. Earth Alive Soil Activator has been shown to boost yields in crops including avocados, grapes, strawberries, and even guavas. Go to EarthAliveCT.com to learn more about it and let our friendly bacteria bring your growing spaces back to life. If you're thinking of planting fruit trees and you're looking for a wide selection of cultivars, consider Whiffle Tree Nursery. Our 62-page full-color catalog includes 300 varieties of fruit and nut trees, berries, grapes, and other edible perennial plants. Not only that, in our catalog, we help you through the selection process with tips and advice about all aspects of growing fruit trees. You can learn about adding nitrogen-fixing plants, 
rootstock choices, and even about planting a windbreak if you have a windy site. We're a one-stop shop as we sell fruit tree care books, pruning tools, organic sprays, and natural fertilizers. We're located in Alora, Ontario, but we can ship all over Canada. Call us at 519-669-1349 to order your catalogue. That's 519-669-1349. Whiffle Tree Nursery. Call us today. Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To get on board, send us an email right now. Our email address is instudio101 at gmail.com. And now, right back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show and your host, Susan Poisner. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, brought to you by Stark Brothers Nursery and Orchards. This is Reality Radio 101, and I'm your host, Susan Poisner, of the Fruit Tree Care training website, orchardpeople.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. In today's show, we've been talking about a fruit fly that is destroying cherry and other crops in various parts of North America. It's called Spotted Wing Drosophila, and today on the show, I've been chatting with Nikki Rothwell, Ph.D., from Michigan State University's Northwest Michigan Horticulture Research Center. In the first part of the show, we talked about these insects and how they affect your fruit trees and crops. Then we discussed how you can protect your sour cherry trees from spotted wing Drosophila. If you missed that information or if you want to listen again, you can download the podcast soon at orchardpeople.com slash podcast. So, but first, before we dive back into the conversation, you have just a few more minutes to enter today's contest. Send us an email right now and you could win free tuition to my fruit tree pruning masterclass. The tuition for this online course is $149 US dollars, but if you win today, you'll get in for free. Um, so to enter, all you have to do is email us right now at instudio101 at gmail.com. That's instudio101 at gmail.com and be sure to include your first name and where you're writing from. So Nikki, an, another thing that you explored, we talked about pruning and how essential it is to opening up the canopy, bringing in the air and bringing in the light and bringing in the heat to keep the spotted wing Drosophila away. But mowing was also part of the solution and that really surprised me. Tell me what role the floor of your garden or orchard plays. It's kind of amazing, really, when you think about it, because I wouldn't have probably put those two together. But again, I was looking at our system, and we do a lot of sod row centers in all of our orchards. Um, and actually, that's fairly common practice. It prevents erosion, you know, all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of sod row centers in there. But sometimes growers don't uh, mow them that often, and you kind of are in there, and you're up to your like, knees in grass and weeds and things. And I start thinking, is there a role that this grass or these weeds, when they grow up, does it contribute to the overall humidity of the entire orchard system? And we found, frankly, it does, which it kind of blew my mind that what you can do on your orchard floor is actually affecting 
insects and how they behave in a canopy that's, you know, 15 feet off the ground. But there is, we found, we had these data loggers in our orchard. We've repeated this for uh, multiple years now. And that we find that we actually, you know, we make the orchard more humid when we don't mow compared to other types of, than compared to just mowing every two weeks. And then the other thing we did early on is we started to look at different, um, you know, covers in an orchard. And then the other thing we did is we actually tried to herbicide everything down so there'd be nothing green in the orchard, which I'm not recommending by any way, by any means. But we wanted it on a research front to see if we herbicided anything that was green, would we reduce SWD? Or the other thing we did was tilling. So we used herbicide on the side row centers at the beginning of the season. And then anytime we saw something green, we came through and tilled it. And there were no statistical differences in our data from mowing every two weeks and kind of these more kind of quote unquote drastic type measures. So I just tell growers that just got to mow every two weeks, keep your grass short, don't let everything go long and you'll reduce, you know, it'll keep the orchard less humid. You'll also raise the temperature a little bit, which will really affect how you manage SWD. So it is kind of like surprising I mean, we crunched the data multiple times because I was like, really, really, what we're doing on the orchard floor really affects in the canopy. So that was another thing that growers can do, again, with that holistic, you know, holistic approach in mind. So I'm understanding that mowing, if you don't mow, you are, are somehow adding more humidity to the orchard. But have you actually proven that that humidity means that there's higher numbers of spotted wing drosophila? Like, did you make that connection or you're just saying, look, if it's more humid, they're going to like it better? Well, we, what our data shows, it's a good question. So we've actually, we tried to vacuum insects up off the floor to see if there was actually physically more SWD using this kind of vacuum. But the problem is I could never get the airflow of the vacuum to not destroy <laughs> the teeny little flies. So we're still working on that, but what we actually showed with the data is that we had lower infested, lower numbers of infested fruit where we mowed compared to where we didn't mow. Hmm. So, and then we showed that the relative humidity, it was much more humid where we didn't mow compared. So it's maybe not a direct comparison, but it's pretty close, but we did try to go see if we could find, actually, you know, get those flies off those different types of orchard floors and we just really couldn't find anything. Yeah, I find that really interesting because one of the things that I'm interested in, and I, I'm totally passionate about biodiversity in the in the in an orchard environment or in your backyard garden. And there are people who talk about beetle bumps. I'll do I'll talk about it with um, somebody who's very um, knowledgeable about it in a future show. But these are like leaving tall grasses in your orchard so that beetles, um, predatory beetles, can hang around in these beetle bumps. Um, and then they, they crawl out and then they eat their little other fellow, you know, their insect pests and then they go back. But I guess that would be similar if you have a strip of tall grasses in your orchard that may actually be good for the SWD. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it might be. I mean, I've had growers that kind of taken some of those data a little too literally, and they think that the SCBD is hanging out in those tall grasses. And we haven't shown that yet, so I have a lot of growers that called me and said, Nikki, I think I should spray my grasses. And I was like, no, 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 no. That's not what we're saying here. So we still have more work to do um, with that. We do that with mites, uh, two-spotted spider mites. 
we used to let grasses grow up in the orchards just because the mites would hang out on these tall grasses rather than moving into the tree. And we always saw them as soon as you mowed your orchard, they'd move from your grasses in the middle over to your tree. Mm. And so there was some reasons we did let our grasses grow long, and it was for really two-spotted mites. You would have less uh, problems in your trees because they'd be hanging out on your grasses. Aha, very interesting. So maybe there's a balance. What you were talking about is the orchard floor, your garden, the the, the, the ground of the, your garden, but having a strip of these grasses might actually be useful, and grasses rather than weeds, specifically and carefully chosen and planted. So again, it brings us back to that lovely biodiversity piece that we got uh, the email about uh, from Tisha in California. So is is there anything else, like wh- where do you think the research is going to go into the future and how hopeful are you that we're actually going to be able to uh, defeat this nasty little fruit fly? I'm more hopeful, I guess, Susan, than I would have been like probably five years ago. I mean, this pest has been really, it's um, it really gets people's emotions up just because you feel like you're throwing everything but the kitchen sink at this thing, and it's still, you're losing. You know, so I feel like it's been really heartbreaking. And I feel like um, we have a lot of growers right now that are struggling for a lot of different economic reasons. This is not new to farming in general. But this SWD just seems like just another, like, nail in that coffin that just makes it just seem, you know, so difficult. So I'm more hopeful for things down the line um, that we might be able to use something like a sterile male release or there might be you know some type of predator or parasitoid that we might be able to use so we are screening a lot of predators and parasitoids that are already here in North America and that we're not necessarily bringing everything in from Asia so I mean I feel like there's more hope than there used to be Um, but I feel like you know we've been it's almost like you're rushing to try to come up with a solution and you're putting things, you know, like making recommendations to growers as fast as we can get the data and get it out to them. So it feels like it's been very emotionally taxing on all of us. And so I feel like there is some hope with some of these practices that things that the growers are doing already. So I'm not telling growers that they should do something really wild and crazy. I'm just saying, hey, maybe we should just prune to open the canopy. And that makes things feel like, more hopeful. <laughs> oh, absolutely. So hope is, yeah, we need that. Right <laughs> we now. need that. We need that right now. And, and these are simple measures. And I think it's really fantastic that you thought to research it. So Nikki, it's the moment has come for us to choose the winner of the prize. And I'm going to need your help. I've got my okay. hand in the prize bucket right now. And I'm going to need you to tell me when I should just grab the, just say win or say hello or something when you think I should grab the name. So it's you choosing the name, not me. Okay. So should I drum roll it? Or yeah, something? drum roll. A little bit of a drum roll. <laughs> Good. Okay. Okay. Take okay. it out. Okay. Take it out. Let's see what we've got. Let's see who we've got. Donnie from Connecticut. Yay. So Donnie, isn't isn't that great? I think he was, Donnie was one of our, I think he was our first person to write in actually. Mm -hmm. So Donnie won a fruit tree pruning masterclass that's free tuition to it. And hopefully he'll enjoy it and that'll be fun. And Nikki, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was really fun to talk to you. And it's really exciting to learn about the things that you guys are doing. 
um, and how it's helping all of us to be better growers and to grow better fruit, and it's super exciting. Well, it's been a real pleasure, Susan. I'm glad you found me, and it was so fun to be on your show. So I wish you the best. Thank you so much. Goodbye for now. Goodbye. That was Nikki Rothwell, Ph.D. from Michigan State University's Northwest Michigan Horticulture Research Center. Well, that's it for today's episode of the Urban Forestry Radio Show. I hope you enjoyed the show. To listen again or download other episodes, you can find them at orchardpeople.com slash podcast. And if you want me to teach you some amazing fruit tree care skills that will help your trees thrive, sign up for one of my courses at orchardpeople.com slash workshops. My courses are great for both beginner and intermediate level growers. Or check out my book at orchardpeople.com slash book. You've been listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show brought to you by Stark Brothers Nurseries and Orchards. This is Reality Radio 101. I'm Susan Poisner from the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. And thank you so much for tuning in. I look forward to digging into a new fruit tree care topic with you next time. been listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. To learn more about the show and to download the podcast where I cover lots more great topics, you can visit orchardpeople.com slash podcast. The show is broadcast live on the last Tuesday of every month. And each time I have great new guests talking to me about fruit trees, food forests, and arboriculture. If you're interested in learning more about growing your own fruit trees or just about living a more sustainable life, go to orchardpeople.com and sign up for my information-packed monthly newsletter. If you like this show, please do like our Orchard People Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter at at Urban Fruit Trees. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's been wonderful to have you as a listener, and I hope to see you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101.